Welcome to Volume 5 of Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit. Chapter 10 If it hadn't been for the whiskers, I don't believe I would have recognized him. It was only about ten minutes since he had shoved his face in at the door of Aunt Dahlia's lair, but in that brief interval his whole aspect had changed. No longer the downcast duck in a thunderstorm from whom I had so recently parted, he had become gay and bobbish. His air was jaunty, his smile bright, and there was in his demeanour more than a suggestion of a man who might at any moment break into a tap dance. It was as if he had spent a considerable time watching that trick of Freddy Widgeon's with the two corks and the bit of string. Hello there, Worcester. He cried buoyantly, and you would have supposed that finding Bertram in its midst would have just about made his day. Taking a stroll, eh? I said yes, I was taking a stroll, and he beamed as though feeling I could have pursued no wiser and more admirable course. Sensible chap, Worcester, he seemed to be saying. He takes strolls. There was a short intermission here, during which he looked at me lovingly, and slid his feet about in the manner of one trying out dance steps. Then he said it was a beautiful evening, and I endorsed this. The sunset, he said, indicating it. Very fruity, I agreed, for the whole horizon was aflame with glorious technicolor. Seeing it, he said, I'm reminded of a poem I wrote the other day for Parnassus. Just a little thing I dashed off. You might care to hear it. Oh, rather! It's called Caliban at Sunset. What at Sunset? Caliban. He cleared his throat and began. I stood with a man, watching the sun go down. The air was full of murmurous summer scents, and a brave breeze sang like a bugle from a sky that smoldered in the west, a sky of crimson, amethyst, and gold, and sepia and blue as blue as were the eyes of Helen, when she sat gazing from some high tower in Ilium upon the Grecian tents darkling below. And he, this man who stood beside me, gaped like some dull half-witted animal and said, I say, doesn't that sunset remind you of a slice of underdone roast beef? He opened his eyes, which he had closed in order to render the more so more effectively. Bitter, of course. How frightfully bitter! I was feeling bitter when I wrote it. I think you know a man named Cheesewright. It was he I had in mind. Actually, we have never stood watching a sunset together, but I felt it was just the sort of thing he would have said if he had been watching a sunset, if you see what I mean. Am I right? Quite right. A soulless clod, don't you think? Soulless to the core. No finer feelings. None. Would I be correct in describing him as a pumpkin-headed oaf? Quite correct. Yes. He said. She is well out of it. She? Florence. Oh, ah. Well out of what? He eyed me speculatively heaving gently like a saucepan of porch about to reach the height of its fever. I'm a man who can observe and deduce, and it was plain to me watching him sizzle that something had happened pretty recently in his affairs, which had churned him up like a sedlitz powder, leaving him with but two alternatives, A, to burst where he stood, and B, to discant his pent-up emotions of the first human being who came along.
No doubt he would have preferred this human being to have been a non-Worcester nature. But one imagines that he was saying to himself that you can't have everything, and he was in no position to pick and choose. He decided an alternative B. Worcester. He said, placing a hand on my shoulder. May I ask you a question? Has your aunt told you that I love Florence Cray? She did mention it, yes. I thought she might have done that. She is not what I would call a reticent woman, though, of course, with many excellent qualities. I was forced to take her into my confidence soon after my arrival here because she asked me why the devil I was going about looking like a dead codfish. Or like Hamlet. Hamlet or a dead codfish. The point is immaterial. I confessed to her that it was because I loved Florence with a consuming passion and had discovered that she was engaged to that oaf cheese right. It had been, I explained, as if I had received a crushing blow to the head. Like Sir Eustace Willoughby. I beg your pardon. In the mystery of the pink crayfish, he was conked on the bean in his library one night, and if you ask me, it was the butler who did it. But I interrupted you. Yes, you did. I'm sorry, you were saying it was as if you had received a crushing blow to the head. Exactly. I reeled beneath the shock. Must have been a nasty jaw. It was. I was stunned. But now, you remember that telegram your aunt gave me to give to Florence? Ah, yes, the telegram. It was from Cheesewright, breaking the engagement. I had no means of knowing, of course, what his form was when reeling beneath shocks, but I doubted whether he could have put up a performance topping mine as I heard these words. The sunset swayed before my eyes as if it were doing the shimmy, and a bird close by which was getting outside its evening worm looked for an instant like two birds, both flickering. What? I gurgled, rocking on my base. Yes. He's broken the engagement. Precisely. Oh, golly, why? He shook his head. I couldn't tell you. All I know is that I found Florence in the stable yard, tickling a cat behind the ear. And I came up and said, here's a telegram for you. And she said, really? I suppose it's from Darcy. I shuddered at the name, and while I was shuddering, she opened the envelope. It was a long telegram, but she had not read more than the first words when she uttered a sharp cry. Bad news, I inquired. Her eyes flashed, and a cold, proud look came into her face. Not at all, she replied to me. Splendid news. Darcy Cheesewright has broken the engagement. Gosh! You may well say gosh. She didn't tell you any more than that. No. She said one or two incisive things about Cheesewright, though, with which I thoroughly concurred, and strode off in the direction of the kitchen garden. I came away walking, as you may well imagine, on air. I depreciate the modern tendency to use slang, but I am not ashamed to confess that what I was saying to myself was the word whoopee. Excuse me, Worcester. I've got to leave you now. I just can't keep still. With these words, he pranced off like a Mustang, leaving me to face the changed conditions alone. It was with a brooding sense of peril that I did so. And if you're saying, but why, Worcester? Surely everything is pretty smooth. What matter if the girl's nuptials with Cheesewright had been cancelled, when here is Percy Gorringe, already and eager to take up the white man's burden? And I reply, Ah, but you haven't seen Percy Gorringe! 
I mean to say, I couldn't picture Florence, however much on the rebound, accepting the addresses of a man who voluntarily wears side whiskers and writes poems about sunsets. Far more likely it seemed to me that having a vacant date on her hands, she would once again reach out for the old and tried viz poor old Bertram. It was what she had done before, and these things tend to become a habit. I was completely at a loss to imagine what could have caused this in-and-out running on Stilton's part. The thing didn't make sense. When Lance seen, it will be remembered, he had had all the earmarks of one about whom love had twined its silken fetters. His every word at that parting chat of ours had indicated this beyond peradventure and doubt. Dash it, I mean, you don't go telling people you'll break their spines in four places if they come oiling round the adored object unless you have more than a passing fancy for the body girl. So what had occurred to dim the lamp of love and all that sort of thing? Could it be, I asked myself, that the strain of growing that moustache has proved too much for him? And he caught sight of himself in the mirror about the third day. The third day is always the danger spot, and felt that nothing in the way of wedded bliss could make the venture worthwhile. Called upon the choose between the woman he loved and a hairless upper lip, and he cracked, with the result that the lip had had it by a landslide. With a view to getting inside stuff straight from the horse's mouth, I hurried to the kitchen garden, where, if Percy was to be relied upon, Florence would now be, probably pacing up and down with lowered head. She was there with lowered head, though not actually pacing up and down. She was bending over a gooseberry bush, eating gooseberries in an overwrought sort of way. Seeing me, she straightened up, and I snapped into the res without preamble. "'What's all this I hear from Percy Gorringe?' I said. She swallowed a gooseberry, with a passionate gulp that spoke eloquently of the churned-up soul, and I saw as Percy's words had led me to expect that she was madder than a wet hen. Her whole aspect was that of a girl who would have given her year's dress allowance for the privilege of beating G. Darcy Cheeseright over the head with a parasol. I continued. He says there has been a rift within the loot. I beg your pardon? You and Stilton, according to Percy, the loot is not the loot it was. Stilton has broken the engagement, he tells me. He has, and I'm delighted, of course. Delighted? You like the set-up? Of course I do. What girl would not be delighted who finds herself unexpectedly freed from a man with a pink face and a head that looks as if it has been blown up with a bicycle pump? I clutched the brow. I'm a pretty astute chap, and I could see that this was not the language of love. I mean, if you heard Juliet saying a thing like that about Romeo, you would have raised the eyebrows in quick concern, wondering if all was well with the young couple. But when I saw him last, everything seemed perfectly okey-dokey. However reluctantly, he had reconciled himself to growing that moustache. She stooped and took another gooseberry. It has nothing to do with moustaches. She said, reappearing on the surface. The whole thing is due to the fact that G. Darcy Cheesewright is a low, mean, creeping, crawling, slinking, spying, despicable worm. She proceeded dishing out the words from between clenched teeth. Do you know what he did? I haven't a notion. She refreshed herself with a further gooseberry and returned to the upper air, breathing a few puffs of flame through the nostrils. He sneaked round to that nightclub yesterday and made inquiries. Oh my gosh! Yes, you wouldn't think a man could stoop so low, but he bribed people and was allowed to look at the head waiter's book, 
and found that a table had been reserved that night in your name. This confirmed his degraded suspicions. He knew that I had been there with you, I suppose. Said Florence, diving at the gooseberry bush once more and starting to strip it of its contents. I suppose a man gets a rotten spying mind like that from being a policeman. To say that I was appalled would not be putting it any too strongly. I was moreover astounded. It was a revelation to me that a puff-based poop like Stilton could have been capable of detective work on this uncanny scale. I had always respected his physique, of course, but had supposed that the ability to fell an ox with a single blow more or less let him out. Not for an instant had I credited him with reasoning powers which might well have made Hercule Perrault himself draw the breath in with a startled what-ho. It just showed how one ought never to underestimate a man simply because he devotes his life to shoving oars into rivers and pulling them out again, this being about as silly a way of passing the time as could be hit upon. No doubt, as Florence had said, this totally unforeseen snakiness was the result of his having been, if only briefly, a member of the police force. One presumes that when the neophyte had been issued his uniform and regulation boots, the men up top take him aside and teach him a few things, likely to be of use to him in his chosen profession. Stilton, it was plain, had learned his lesson well, and, if one did but know, was probably capable of measuring bloodstains and collecting cigar ash. However, it was only fleeting attention that I gave to this facet of the situation. My thoughts were concentrated on something of far greater pith and moment, as Jeeves would say. I alluded to the position, now that the man knew all, of B. Worcester, which seemed to be sticky to a degree. Florence, having sated herself with gooseberries, was starting to move off, when I arrested her with a sharp, Hoy! That telegram, I said. I don't want to talk about it. Well, I do! Was there anything about me in it? Oh, yes, quite a bit. I swallowed a couple of times and passed a finger around the inside of my collar. I had thought that might be. Did he hint at any plans he had with regard to me? He said he was going to break your spine in five places. Five places? I think he said five. Don't you let him, said Florence warmly. And it was nice, of course, to know that she disapproved. Breaking spines. I never heard of such a thing. He ought to be ashamed of himself. And she moved off in the direction of the house, walking like a tragedy queen on one of her bad mornings. What I have heard Jeeves call the glimmering landscape was now fading on the sight and it was getting on for the hour when dressing gongs are being beaten. But though I knew how rash it ever was to be late for one of Anatole's dinners, I could not bring myself to go in and don the soup and fish. I had so much to occupy the mind that I lingered on in a sort of stupor. Winged creatures of the night kept rolling up and taking a look at me and rolling off again, but I remained motionless, plunged in thought. A man pursued by a thug like Darcy Cheesewright has need of all the thought he can get a hold of. And then, quite suddenly, out of the night that covered me, black as the pit from pole to pole, there shone a gleam of light. It spread, illuminating the entire horizon, and I realized that, taken by and large, I was sitting pretty. You see, what I had failed till now to spot was the fact that Stilton hadn't a notion that I was at Brinkley, thinking me to be in the metropolis. It was there he'd be spreading his dragnet, he would call at the flat, ring bells, get no answer, and withdraw baffled. He would haunt the drones, expecting me to drop in, and eventually, when I didn't so drop, 
would slink away baffled again. He cometh not, he would say, no doubt grinding his teeth. A fat lot of good that would do him. Of course, after what had occurred, there was no chance of him visiting Brinkley. A man who has broken off his engagement doesn't go to the country house where he knows the girl to be. Well, I mean, I ask you. Naturally, he doesn't. If there was one spot on earth which could be counted on to be wholly free from cheese rights, it was Brinkley Court. Brinkley comes Snodsfield in the marsh, Worcestershire. Profoundly relieved, I picked up the feet and hastened to my room with a song on my lips. Jeeves was there, not actually holding a stopwatch, but obviously shaking his head a bit over the young master's tardiness. His left eyebrow quivered perceptibly as I entered. Yes, I know I'm late, Jeeves, I said, starting to shed the upholstery. I went for a stroll. He accepted the explanation indulgently. I quite understand, sir. It had occurred to me that the evening would be so fine, you were probably enjoying a saunter on the grounds. I told Mr. Cheesewright that this was no doubt the reason for your absence. Chapter 11 Half in and half out of the shirt, I froze like one of those fellows in the old fairy stories who used to talk out of turn to magicians and have spells cast upon them. My ears were sticking up like a wire-haired terrier's, and I could scarcely believe that I had heard right. I quivered. What was that, Jeeves? Sir? I don't understand you. Are you saying... Are you telling me... Are you actually asserting that Stilton Cheesewright is on the premises? Yes, sir. He arrived not long ago in his car. I found him waiting here. He expressed a desire to see you, and appeared chagrined at your continued absence. Eventually, the dinner hour becoming imminent, he took his departure. He is hoping, I gathered from his remarks, to establish contact with you at the conclusion of the meal. I slid dumbly into the shirt and started to tie the tie. I was quivering partly with apprehension, but even more with justifiable indignation. To say that I felt that this was a bit thick would not be straining the facts unduly. I mean, I know Darcy Cheesewright to be of coarse fibre, the sort of bozo who, as Percy had said, would look at a sunset and see in it only a resemblance to a slice of underdone roast beef, but surely one is entitled to expect even bozos to have decent feelings and what not, and a certain amount of delicacy. This breaking off his engagement to Florence with one hand and coming thrusting his society on her with the other struck me as it would have struck any fine-minded man as about as near the outside rim as it's possible to go. It's monstrous, Jeeves, I cried. Has this pumpkin-headed oaf no sense of what's fitting? Has he no tact, no discretion? Are you aware that this evening... Through the medium of a telegram, which I have every reason to believe was a stinker, he severed his relations with Lady Florence? No, sir. I had not been appraised of that. Mr. Cheesewright did not confide in me. He must have stopped off en route to compose the communication, for it arrived not very long before he did. Fancy doing the thing by telegram, thus giving some post office clerk the laugh of a lifetime, then actually having the crust to come barging in here. That Jeeves is serving it up with cream sauce. I don't want to be harsh, but there's only one word for Darcy Cheese right, and that's uncouth. What are you goggling at, I asked, noticing that his gaze was fixed upon me in a meaning manner. He spoke with quiet severity. Your tie, sir. It will not, I fear, pass muster. 
Is this the time to be talking about dyes? Yes, sir. One aims at the perfect butterfly shape, and this you have not achieved. With your permission, sir, I will adjust it. He did so, and I must say he did a fine job of it, but I continue to chafe. Do you realize, Jeeves, that my life is in peril? Indeed, sir. I assure you that hunk of Bologna, and I allude to G. Darcy Cheesewright, has formally stated his intention of breaking my spine in five places. Indeed, sir. Why is that? I gave him the facts, and he expressed his opinion that the position of affairs was disturbing. I shot one of my looks at him. You would go so far as that, Jeeves? Yes, sir. Most disturbing. Oh, I said, borrowing a bit of Stilton stuff. I was about to tell him that if he couldn't think of a better word than that to describe it was probably the ghastliest imbroglio that had ever broken loose in the history of the human race, I'll be glad to provide him with a Roger's thesaurus at my personal expense. When the gong went off, and I had to leg it for the trough. I do not look back to that first dinner at Brinkley Court as among the pleasantest functions which I have attended. Ironically, considering the circumstances, Anatole, that wizard of the pots and pans, had come through with one of his supremest efforts. He had provided the company with, if memory serves me correctly, Le caviar frais, le consommé au pomme de mort, le sylphisé à la crème de crevice, le fried smelts, le bird of some kind with chipped potatoes, and le ice cream. Of course, le fruit and le café. But for all its efforts on the Worcester's soul, it might have been corned beef hash. I don't say I pushed it away untasted, as Aunt Dahlia had described Percy doing with his daily ration, but the successive courses turned to ashes in my mouth. The sight of Stilton across the table blunted appetite. I suppose it was just imagination, but he seemed to have grown quite a good deal both upwards and sideways since I had last seen him, and the play of expression on his salmon-coloured face showed only too clearly the thoughts that were occupying his mind, if you could call it that. He gave me from eight to ten dirty looks in the course of the meal, but except for a remark at the outset to the effect that he was hoping to have a word for me later, did not address me, nor for that matter did he address anybody else. His demeanour throughout was that of a homicidal deaf-mute. The trotter female who sat on his right endeavoured to entertain him with a saga about Mrs. Alderman Blenkinsop's questionable behaviour at a recent church bazaar, but he confined his response to gaping at her like some dull half-witted animal, as Percy would have said, and digging sadly into the foodstuffs. Sitting next to Florence, who spoke little, merely looking cold and proud and making bread pills, I had ample leisure time for thought during the festivities, and by the time the coffee came round I had formed my plans and perfected my strategy. When eventually Aunt Dahlia blew the whistle for the gentler sex to buzz off and leave the men to their port, I took advantage of their departure to execute a quick sneak through the French windows into the garden, being well into the open before the first of the procession had crossed the threshold. Whether or not this clever move brought a hoarse cry to Stilton's lips I cannot say for certain, but I fancied I heard something that sounded like the howl of a timber wolf that has stubbed its toe on a passing rock. Not bothering to go back and ask if he had spoken, I made my way into the spacious grounds. Had circumstances been different from what they were, not of course that they ever are, I might have derived no little enjoyment from this after-dinner saunter, 
for the air was full of murmurous summer scents, and a brave breeze sang like a bugle from a sky literally studded with stars. But to appreciate a starlit garden, one has to have a fairly tranquil mind, and mine was about as far from being tranquil as it could jolly well stick. What to do, I kept asking myself. It seemed to me that the prudent course, if I wished to preserve a valued spine intact, would be to climb aboard the two-seater first thing in the morning and hoe for the open spaces. To remain in status quo would, it was clear, involve a distasteful nippiness on my part, for only by the most unremitting activity could I hope to elude Stilton and foil his sinister aims. I would be compelled, I saw, to spend a substantial amount of my time flying like a youthful heart or row over the hills where spices grow, as I remembered having heard Jeeves once put it, and the Worcesters resent having to sink to the level of hearts and rows, with a juvenile or getting out in years. We have our pride. I had just reached a decision that on the morrow I would melt away like snow on the mountain top and go to America or Australia or the Fiji Islands or somewhere for a while, when the murmurous summer scents were augmented by the aroma of a powerful cigar, and I observed a dim figure approaching. After a tense moment when I supposed it could be Stilton, and braced myself for a spot of that youthful heart or row stuff, I got it placed. It was only Uncle Tom taking his nightly prowl. Uncle Tom was a great lad for prowling in the garden, a man with greyish hair and a face like a walnut. Not that that has anything to do with it, of course. I just mention it in passing. He likes to be among the shrubs and flowers early and late, particularly late, for he suffers a bit from insomnia, and the tribal medicine man told him that a breath of fresh air before hitting the hay would bring relief. Seeing me, he paused for station identification. Is that you, Bertie, my boy? I conceded this, and he hove alongside, puffing smoke. Why did you leave us? He asked, alluding to that quick duck of mine from the dining room. Oh, I thought I would. Well, you didn't miss much. What a set. That man Trotter makes me sick. Oh, yes. His stepson Percy makes me sick. Oh, yes. And that fellow Cheeserite makes me sick. They all make me sick. Said Uncle Tom, he's not one of your jolly innkeeper with entrance number in Act One hosts. He looks with ill-concealed aversion on at least 94% of the guests within his gates and spends most of his time dodging them. Who invited Cheese right here? Dahlia, I suppose, though why we shall never know. A deleterious young slab of damnation if ever I saw one. But she will do these things. I've even known her to invite her sister, Agatha. Talking of Dahlia, Bertie, my boy, I'm worried about her. Worried? Exceedingly worried. I believe she's sickening for something. Has her manner struck you as strange since you got here? I mused. No, I don't think so. She seemed to be about the same as usual. How do you mean strange? He waved a concerned cigar. He and the old relative are a fond and united couple. It's just now, when I looked in on her in her room to ask if she would care to come for a stroll, she said no. She didn't think she would, because if she went out at night, she always swallows moths and midges and things, and she didn't believe it was good for her on top of a heavy dinner. And we were talking idly of this and that, when she suddenly seemed to come all over faint. 
She swooned, you mean? No, I wouldn't say she actually swooned. She continued perpendicular, but she tottered, pressing her hand on the top of her head. Pale as a ghost, she looked. Hard! Very. It worried me. I'm not at all easy in my mind about her. I pondered. It couldn't have been something you said that upset her. Impossible. I was talking about this fellow Sitcup who's coming tomorrow to look at my silver collection. You've never met him, have you? No. Rather a fat-headed ass. Said Uncle Tom, who thinks most of his circle are fat-headed asses. But apparently knows quite a bit about old silver and jewellery, and all that sort of thing. And anyway, he'll only be here for dinner, thank God. He added in his hospitable way. But I was telling you about your aunt. As I was saying, she tottered and looked as pale as a ghost. The fact of the matter is, she's been overdoing it. This paper of hers, this Madam's Nightshirt, or whatever it's called, it's wearing her to a shadow. Silly nonsense. What does she want with a weekly newspaper? I'll be thankful if she sells it to that man Trotter and gets rid of the damnable thing, because apart from wearing her to a shadow, it's costing me a fortune. Money, 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 there's no end to it. He then spoke with considerable fervour for a while of income tax and surtax, and making a tentative appointment to meet me in the bread line at an early date, popped off and was lost in the night. And I, feeling that the hour, now advanced, it might be safe to retire to my room, made my way thither. As I started to get something loose, I continued to brood on what he had told me about Aunt Dahlia. I found myself mystified. At dinner I had, of course, been distrait and preoccupied, but even so I would, I have thought, have noticed if she had shown any signs of being in the grip of a wasting sickness or anything like that. As far as I could recollect, she had appeared to be tucking into the various items on the menu with her customary zip and brio, and Uncle Tom had spoken of her as looking as pale as a ghost, a thing which took some doing with a face as red as hers. Art not to say mysterious. I was still musing on this, and wondering what Osborne Cross, the sleuth in the mystery of the pink crayfish, would have made of it when I was jerked out of my meditations by the turning of the door handle. This was followed by a forceful bang on the panel, and I realized how prudent I had been in locking up before settling in for the night, for the voice that now spoke was that of Stilton Cheesewright. Worcester! I rose, laying down my crayfish, into which I had been about to dip, and I put my lips to the keyhole. Worcester! All right, my good fellow, I said coldly. I heard you the first time. What do you want? A word with you. Well, you jolly well aren't going to have it. Leave me, Cheesewright. I would be alone. I have a slight headache. It won't be slight if I get to you. Ah, but you can't get to me now, can you? I reposted cleverly, and returning to my chair, resumed my literary studies, pleasantly conscious of having worsted him in debate. He called me a few derogatory names through the woodwork, banged and handled, rattled it a bit more, and finally shoved off no doubt muttering horrid imprecations. It was about five minutes later there was another knock on the door, this time so soft and discreet that I had no difficulty in identifying it. Is that you, Jeeves? Yes, sir. Just a moment. As I crossed the room to admit him, I was surprised to find that the lower limbs were feeling a bit flattered. That verbal duel with my recent guest had shaken me more than I had suspected. 
I've just had a visit from Stilton Cheese, right, Jeeves, I said. Indeed, sir. I trust the outcome was satisfactory. Yes, I rather nonplussed the simple soul. He had imagined he could penetrate into my sanctum without let or hindrance, and was struck all of a heap when he found the door locked. But the episode has left me a little weak, and I would be glad if you could dig me out a whiskey and soda. Certainly, sir. It wants to be prepared in just the right way. Who is that pal of yours you were speaking about the other day, whose strength was that of ten? A gentleman of the name of Galahad, sir. You err, however, in supposing him to have been a personal friend. He was the subject of a poem by the late Alfred Lord Tennyson. Immaterial, Jeeves! All I was going to say was that I would like the strength of this whiskey and soda to be of that of ten. Don't flinch when pouring. Very good, sir. He departed on his errand of mercy, and I buckled down to the crayfish once again. But scarcely had I started to collect clues and interview suspects when I was interrupted again. A clenched fist had sloshed against the portal with a disturbingly booming sound. Assuming that my visitor was Stilton, I was about to rise and rebuke him through the keyhole as before, when there penetrated from the outer spaces an ejaculation so fruity and full of vigour that it could have proceeded only from the lips of one who had learned her stuff among the hounds and foxes. And Dahlia! Open this door! I did so, and she came charging in. Where is Jeeves? She asked, so plainly, all a Twitter, that I eyed her in considerable alarm. After what Uncle Tom had been saying about her tottering, I didn't like the febrile agitation. Something the matter, I asked. You bet something's the matter, Bertie, said the old relative, sinking on the chaise lounge and looking as if at any moment she might start blowing bubbles. I'm up against it, and only Jeeves can save my name in the home from becoming mud. Produce the blighter and let him exercise that giant brain of his as never before.